Good morning. Happy Sabbath. We're here together again, looking at the book of Genesis. I am excited because as part of our conversation today, we're going to have a special guest that has just come back from the Holy Land and is going to tell us what the ground itself feels like. He is emanating holiness at this point. And so we are going to chat with my good friend Joey on and about the fall. For those of you who commented and liked our video last week, I've got good news for you. We are purchasing some more commentaries and we will have those mailed at uh, for you this week. Before we start with our conversation, can I invite you to go ahead and pray with me as we talk to God? Loving God, we thank you. We thank you for the promise of Jesus and we thank you for the idea of forgiveness for that reality that is grace. Because even as we think about sin and about the fall, even as we realize how broken the world is and how desperate we are for wholeness and healing, we rest firmly in the realization that in Christ there is always a new beginning. There is always a possibility for healing there was always an opportunity for wholeness. So we thank you for all these things, and we pray that you continue guiding us throughout our conversation. Be with our viewers, for we pray in your name. Amen. So I've decided to introduce, and with our producer and our colleagues here, a new section on our show, and that is just because we recognize that so many of you watch us from all over the country, and thank you for watching. Thank you for sending your emails and your comments. We love these. And uh, as part of our conversation last week, I've got a really interesting letter from Houston, Texas. You know, we love our Texans here in Loma Linda. Uh, Gary Boismeyer. Uh, I just want to read you part of this very thoughtful letter that he wrote. Thank you, Gary, for watching. Gary says, from the Gilgamesh epic, in a search for immortality, Gilgamesh swims to the bottom of the sea to retrieve a plant, which will give him immortality. He is so exhausted from his efforts that he rests before consuming the plant. However, when he sleeps, a snake comes by and eats the plant. Gilgamesh loses immortality, and the snake gains it. The parallel that Gary notices is to, gen is to the Genesis account, as Adam loses immortality and access to the tree of life because of a serpent. Gary, how thoughtful it is that you were able to connect that story in the Rashamra tablets, the Gilgamesh epic, with our story in Genesis. And where some people and some students of comparative literature decide to look at the similarities, you've pushed me to actually think about how God's story, God's narrative for us transcends culture and language. And perhaps, and just perhaps, all these links, these little connections, these sense of the Genesis account in narratives around the world are another case of God speaking even through the rocks. So thank you, Gary, for watching. Thank you for your thoughtful comments. Please, our viewers, keep them coming. We'd love to read them here and maybe answer some of those questions. 
As I promised, though, we've got my good friend Joey. Oh, how was how was the falafel in the Middle East, Joey? <laughs> you know, I love falafels, um, so they were great. <laughs> I loved eating the falafels, uh, but my favorite part was actually the cucumbers mm. and the the tomatoes and salad. I ate cucumbers and tomatoes every day, almost every meal. Wow! <laughs> yeah, almost every meal. I just breakfast and dinner, each meal I had. A cucumber and tomato salad, and it was just, it was amazing, and I loved it there. <laughs> I know some people come back hating falafels and never wanting to eat falafels again. Yes, this, I, this I am not our one senior of those pastor. people. He yeah. can't do falafels. Yeah. Um, well, you look yeah. very healthy. Maybe it was all the cucumber in the salad that you ate, but you look very healthy. It's interesting that as Joey went to the Middle East to eat cucumber and salad, our lesson today deals with another character mm. in the Middle East eating something that she should not have eaten. And so I'd invite you all to turn and open your Bibles. I know Joey has it open already. We're going to go to uh, the book of Genesis, the third chapter. Just have it out there. I know it's a passage that we all know so well. It deals with the, the fall. And Joey, uh, Genesis 3 begins simply by stating, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. What does it mean to be crafty? Wow. Are, are you crafty? I, I thought I was crafty, <laughs> and then I read Genesis 3, and I said, well, maybe I don't want to be crafty. Yeah, I'm not very crafty. You know, in, in, in Korean culture, there's these two animals that are often used to describe different personalities. One is a bear and one is a fox. Um, usually they use this for women, but you know, a bear is someone that is more um, easygoing and um, amicable, whereas the fox is sort of like crafty and um, they, they challenge people. And so that's what I always picture of when I see, when I hear crafty. But about this passage, what's so, so appropriate, I think, about this passage is the Satan uses this serpent. Mm. And, you know, typically now we think of serpents as really disgusting creatures mm -hmm. that I know there are some people that love reptiles out there. But for the vast majority <laughs> of us, we would rather not have a serpent crawl into our bed, right? There's things about serpents that just really creep us out. But back then, the serpent was a beautiful creature. Mm -hmm. Ellen White describes the serpent as being a wise creature and a noble creature. And so Satan takes this thing that is a symbol of nobility and wisdom and and then uses it for his purposes. And it just kind of reminds me that um, evil doesn't always look mm. like evil, right? Mm. Evil, evil doesn't always look like, you know, blatant in your face evil. Because if it was always like that, most of us would be saying, no, right. there's no way. None of us would say, oh, I want to be a serial killer. No, that that is not that has not entered most of our 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 thoughts. But Evil often disguises itself in beauty mm -hmm. and and doesn't really look that bad. And that's how Satan often gets mm. us. And it seems like that's what he's doing here. That's a really good way of explaining it. And actually, that's the sense that the text has when it's talking about this capacity to be crafting. Mm. It has to do with shrouding this part of truth mm in an error and you're going to see how the the language and the narrative begins to deconstruct that idea the other thing that you've know that you've mentioned is kind of this societal reaction that we have to snakes which is 
I don't want any snakes in my bed. You are absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, my kid likes, Micah likes reptiles, so we're going to have to figure that out because he keeps asking me for a, for a gecko. <laughs> but in the culture of the ancient Near East, much like you're mentioning with Korean culture, animals mean something. Mm. And so in the culture of the ancient Near East, um, as Gary noted in the Gilgamesh epic, or as um, you would read if you listen, if you read some Ugaritic uh, tales where it talks about Yom, who is the god of the sea, who's actually uh, a long, long sea serpent, um, there is this kind of paradox to the animal itself mm. because it, it means wisdom and they're linked to beauty, but that wisdom and that beauty is usually used for chaos. And so mm. the serpents are also uh, the sign and the symbol in the ancient Near East of chaos and destruction wow. and the anti-order uh, beings. And so it's interesting that as we talked about last week, Genesis 1 and 2 are all about God's order. And here you're introduced to a serpent that is a symbol of chaos. And I found what you said so profound because you just said sometimes evil will disguise itself as beauty and as something that makes sense and is rational, but it ultimately leads, uh, leads to chaos. Yeah. This is why I love having these conversations with you, Miguel, because I learned so much. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that, that serpents were had this symbolism in ancient Near Eastern cultures. And it that it makes sense that that um, that linkage would happen if, if this is the way that that history played out. And that idea that Satan hides truth in error, like you said, I mean, he still does that today, mm. right? That he he always wraps error in enough truth that it sounds good enough for people to accept yeah and we're gonna see that in in a few in a few moments in the text notice what he says he says did god really say you must not eat from mm. any tree of the garden yeah. and the woman said to the serpent we may eat for, from the fruit of any trees in the garden but god did say you must not eat from the tree of the garden that is just in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die mm. verse four you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Wow. And so there you have, right, this kind of argument that, she that the serpent walks Eve through, mm -hmm. where she's saying, you're not going to die, you're actually going to be like God, mm -hmm. because you're going to know both good and evil. The passage typically gets read as disobedience. Mm. God says, don't do something, and Eve does it. But in reality, it's sin. the problem of sin is a bit deeper than that, isn't mm. it? We tend to focus a lot on the actions wow. and the behaviors. Yeah. But I think the problem here that you see is that the serpent is telling Eve and tempting Eve with this promise to be like God. And so the ultimate problem isn't disobedience in the sense that I'm going to eat a piece of fruit. Well, there's nothing objectionably wrong about eating fruit. You must know that since you ate a lot, I'm sure, a lot of fruit yes. in the Middle East. The problem is idolatry. Mm. Because Eve wants to be her own God. Mm. And we say now, well... We're not. A, we don't practice idolatry. We don't have images or gods or statues to which we bow. Is idolatry still the primary problem that human beings deal with? 
I think so. I mean, I loved how you framed that, that that Satan leads, the serpent leads this Eve through this process of distrust, right? He, you know, he's introduces a little bit of doubt, right? He kind of twists the words mm. just enough and then Eve says it and then she kind of ends up twisting the words a little bit more and then and then full full uh, blown out, well, contradicting God. And it, he doesn't do that from the very beginning. He leads her through. I love how he said that. He leads her through that process and eventually leads her to the place where she's thinking, oh, oh, there is somebody or something I want to serve more than God, mm. right? And that's at the heart of idolatry. Right, it's not about a, an object, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, a lot of times these objects became symbols of things that I could control to manipulate the gods that I want uh, to do what I want them to do. And that's why you see God resisting throughout Scripture of being an image or being something physical that people can can manipulate and control because He is not controllable. And yet, that's sort of what's being introduced here at the beginning is that Eve is saying, well, I want to have control. And the idolatry is not so much idolatry of something, but idolatry of self, mm -hmm. right? That that I want, I trust myself, I trust whatever I think is right more than what I, tr than I trust God. I trust the serpent more than I trust mm -hmm. God. And so it's not so much, like you said, about disobedience and action, but about distrust which is a condition of the heart. Mm. Yeah, and it's, so let's think about this issue of trust because I'm so happy you brought it up. Trust seems to lie at the very heart of the passage. Now, typically, I grew up with this worldview of Christianity that says you, you have, in order to have freedom, you have to have two options, mm. two choices. Uh, you have to have good mm. and you have to have the capacity to choose evil. And so this tree in the middle of the garden is God's ultimate test for freedom. Mm. Um, if you choose good, you will stay away from your from the tree. Um, if you choose evil, you will eat of the tree. Now there's a problem with that that I that I noticed as I kind of was thinking about that this mm. week. And that is that if you believe that evil is necessary, for there to be freedom, mm. then evil becomes a necessary component for existence, mm. right? And it has to come from somewhere. And so you have two options. You have this duality that the Greeks loved about two opposing forces, or you have a God who has the capacity for both good and evil. Mm. You all always complain that I use really big words. The fancy term for that is evil is ontologically necessary. So there's your big word for today, ontology. It has to do with being. But Joey, as people always say, I love Pastor Joey because he brings it down to the level of <laughs> earth and ground and language. Joey, is evil necessary for there to be freedom? Wow. Wow. Way to throw a very difficult question <laughs> towards me. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's that is so fascinating because that actually also has root, roots in like Eastern philosophy, mm -hmm. right? With a concept of yin and yang, mm -hmm. right? That they are two sides of the same coin and you really can't have good without having evil, right? But if evil is necessary, um, then then it means that that it was inevitable right. 
that somebody would have to sin. And is that is that the universe that God, God created? Was it inevitable that people had to sin? You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity seems to sort of suggest that, mm -hmm. right? In, in Mere Christianity, he, he says that this was inevitable and this is a process the universe needs to go through. Mm -hmm. So ultimately they can realize that God's way is the best way. I struggle with that personally. Personally, I struggle with that because it, it, it means that God created a universe that would ultimately eventually have to have evil. And I, I, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know. Miguel, what do you think? So I'm going to take it way up here and then I'm going to I'm going to do Micah Mendes theology, which is going to put it in a in a place that I find way more useful. So let's go up here first. Augustine. Mm. Augustine had a really interesting definition for evil mm. or for sin. Augustine didn't define evil on the basis of what it was. Mm. Instead, he, he used what he called the via negativa, what it wasn't. Mm. And so he said, evil isn't a thing that exists just like darkness isn't a thing that exists. Mm. He would say evil simply is the privation of good, mm. just like darkness is the privation of light. Mm -hmm. So Augustine didn't believe, unlike Lewis, Augustine didn't believe that evil was necessary. Augustine believed that evil was the state of the world when God was absent. Mm. Just like darkness is the state of the world when light yeah. is absent. That's still up here. Mm -hmm. And then Micah took Augustine and made it palatable for me. Evil actually doesn't give freedom, Micah would say. Mm. Evil restricts freedom. Mm. Because true freedom is the capacity to choose from an infinite amount of good choices. Mm. The Bible says you may eat of any of the trees in the garden. Mm. So you have a choice from an infinite amount of trees that you may eat, and that is true freedom. Mm. Once you eat of the tree of good and evil, that freedom is now restricted and you have to live outside of the garden. Yeah. And so when I was saying that we were going to bring it down to Micah, Micah and I went to the ice cream shop mm. this week. And we're standing in front of a bunch of ice cream shops, a bunch of ice cream flavors at this place that we won't mention because they're not giving us any money. <laughs> but if you want a sponsorship, we'd be happy to mention <laughs> a la minute with Chad. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go, which has the best ice cream in, in Redlands. So we're standing there yeah. and we look at all the, the flavors and he knows what he wants in a second. And I'm still waiting and, wait, and I can't make up my mind. And the reason I can't make up my mind is the freedom to choose from all these amazing flavors is true freedom. Mm. And so I think God is putting Eve in this infinitely good ice cream shop where he says hey you can eat anything you want mm. this tree however you shall not eat it because the moment that you want to be god for yourself you've exiled me from the equation mm. and when you exile me from the equation when i'm not present fully present bad things happen wow I love how you frame that, how Augustine frames that, that good is, the evil is the absence of good, just like darkness is the absence of light, right? Um, I remember hearing an argument that, you know, does, 
does cold exist? Well, no, cold doesn't exist. Cold is just the absence of heat. Mm -hmm. Heat exists, but the absence of heat is cold. Like when you get to zero Kelvin, where there's absolutely no heat, that's cold, right? Um, and does light, does darkness exist? No, well, darkness doesn't exist. It's just the absence of light, right? So it, it, it's not a thing of itself. And so the fact that there is good, that there that we can see things that are evil points to the fact that there is an ultimate good, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that that's so powerful, this concept that that good good is there and that God wants us to have that infinite choice. I love that infinite choice of all that is good because the way that Satan seems to frame this and reframe um, her thinking is that God is super restrictive, mm -hmm. right? That God is a person that's trying to trap her and keep her from things that are good for her. And, and that is the opposite of what God is opposite because God says, there's an, like, I, I love how you said, there's an infinite amount of good choices that you have here, right? Choose from the good. Um, and as humans, sometimes we think that, tr that true freedom is the ability to choose from all the choices and including the evil choices, um, that, doing those things without consequence, that is true freedom. But the reality is, and something that I think Eve didn't fully understand here when she made this choice was that we humans are finite. Mm -hmm. We humans have limitations because we are created. And so ultimately, no matter how much we want to be God, we can't be God. And the, even the attempt of trying to be God keeps us from being able to experience what is good, Ooh. right? Uh, we've talked about this before, how... You know, we love, love to tell our children that they can do anything and be everything. But the reality is they can't, right? There are some things that they can't do. If my daughter was on top of my two-story house and she said, Daddy, I think I can fly. And I'm just going to jump off this roof because I'm going to fly. I would never say, okay, honey, go ahead. I believe you can do it. Right. right? <laughs> because she can't. The reality is she cannot fly. If she jumps off that roof, she's going to get seriously hurt mm -hmm. or die, right? There are limitations to who to us because we are created beings. And actually embracing those limitations enables us to really experience true freedom. Oh, wow. That is a really profound statement. And I want you to understand how this very intellectual conversation becomes very practical. So people might be saying, and you at home might be saying, Pastor Joey and Pastor Miguel are saying that evil doesn't exist. Yet I see the results, the very real and painful results of evil every day in my mm. life. And so I think what you just said was so poignant in the sense that evil is this impossible possibility, mm -hmm. this unreality that we choose. Much like if one of your girls were to climb up on the roof and say, Daddy, I can fly. I believe I can fly. Mm -hmm. The belief doesn't lead to a reality. The gravity still is going to work. The, the belief in flying and the faith in, in the capacity to fly does not negate the laws of gravity. Mm. And so for, for us, some, maybe sometimes the, the thought that there is a possibility, a particular scenario where we can be God is always going to end in destruction, mm. not because it's necessary, but because it is a fallacy and you cannot wow. choose from something that doesn't exist. Wow. And so when you choose something that is non-existent, there are real painful 
consequences to those decisions, even if the thing in, in itself was never real, just like your girl's uh, ability to fly was never real. So that's a really helpful way to take a it what could be a really intellectual conversation and grounded in this idea of no evil isn't necessary. God wants and, and God isn't restrictive by saying choose the way of life. Um, because it's the only choice that actually makes sense. It's mm. the only rational choice that we can make. And what Satan is going to do, as you've mentioned, is he's going to try and trick us and shroud this huge lie in, in just enough truth that we believe in this impossible possibility. Wow, I love how you frame that, that, that evil basically is choosing what is not real choosing what is fake. It's choosing the lie over the truth, mm -hmm. right? That's what evil is because when we, and when obviously when we choose what is not real, when we choose what is not, what is fake, it ultimately leads to our destruction. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see in this passage here, right? Um, ultimately it leads to the destruction of their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, right? Their relationship with themselves, the relationship with nature and, and the environment that they, it, it leads to these destructive consequences when we choose to lie over the mm. truth. Wow. That's well said, Joey. So then you have her, and notice that you were mentioning there's just this enough truth to get us to begin to doubt. And so uh, verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Mm. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Wait a second. Mm. Pause. Pause there for a second. Uncle Arthur told me that Eve was wandering around in the garden alone <laughs> and, that the, and that she was gullible and the serpent tricked her and that she ate the fruit and then took it to Adam. And Adam looked at her and said, oh, what, if, what have you done? But I love you so much that in this very altruistic act, I'm going to eat the fruit too because I want to die with you in a very Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet sense. Did Uncle Al Is Uncle Arthur lying to me? What, what do we do with this text that says that Adam was right there with her? Yes, with her. That's that's a really interesting um, proposition, right? The fact that he she was um, with her. You know, I I I was re reading some um, something that Richard Davidson wrote about that that preposition. And it could mean physical proximity, but it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean physical proximity. It could also talk to the fact that they were one, right? Um, but either way, it does sort of relieve some of the responsibility and guilt off of Eve on herself that we sometimes place. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, Eve is the one that brought sin in the world. This is a choice that both of them made, mm -hmm. right? It's not just one or the other. It's not that Eve did this terrible thing and Adam was like, okay, then I will die with you, right? Even if that were the case, what he does a few <laughs> verses later totally negates that, right? Because he totally throws her under the bus. So even if that were the case and he was like, oh, Eve, you're doing this foolish thing. I tried to stop you, but you did it anyway, so I'm going to die with you. Just a few verses later, he's like, well, the woman you gave me. She did it. She, I know, right? So let's let's not delude ourselves and thinking, oh, um, Adam was being so altruistic and so loving and so caring because ultimately choosing 
whether it was choosing Eve or choosing this deception that the that the, that Satan was selling, ultimately led to the destruction of his relationship with his mm. wife and hurt his relationship with God and all of that. So, yeah, I, I mean, how would you? How would I, you I think I think you're right. I think both uh, the the Hebrew talks about proximity. It mm. also talks about this uh, this sense of being one flesh or being joined unto one another, um, and so I think that. Early on, the text wants to both both parties to take responsibility, mm -hmm. and so I think that speaks a lot. And we we love uh, friends in other faith traditions that are complementarians in their views of gender roles. But I think the original idea of God is not a complementarian view of gender mm -hmm. roles. I think God is pushing towards egalitarianism when you see a. Uh, Passages like Genesis 1.26, male and female, he created them. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at Genesis 2, and there's this, there's this beautiful idea of God performing surgery on the man and choosing a rib and then fastening this, this woman that is supposed to complement. And that's the word itself. It's not a subservient to the man. It's, it's a complement to Adam. So I think in both those cases, the ideal is more egalitarian than complementarian. And the problem is often when, when we're not open and honest about how we're reading scriptures, we come up with these interpretations that aren't always open and honest with, with the text. Yeah. And it does say something very powerful that Eve makes the choice. Even though it was a bad choice, mm -hmm. she makes the choice. She doesn't follow man into the choice. Mm -hmm. She is actually the one that, who makes a choice, mm -hmm. right? So I think both, I mean, and like we said, both of them actually make this choice together. And so that that leads to a lot more of that egalitarian perspective that you, you're talking about. Yeah, and she's not passive. She's not wow. a passive spectator, which is which is fascinating. Yeah. Because you would assume that in a culture that is patriarchal, right, where men speak and women listen, and a woman is supposed to listen in silence, the text does not punish Eve for thinking and for talking. Mm. The text has a problem with idolatry, not with a woman that pursues wisdom mm. or that pursues thinking or that pursues talking. Yeah. So they fall. Yeah. And then something happens. Mm. Um, and it, it's really interesting because you have kind of this, Eve is active, Adam is passive. Both of them realize something has happened. Mm. Um, they realize that uh, their eyes are open. They realize that they're naked. And so they sew fig leaves to cover themselves. Mm. I had a fig tree in my house in Loma Linda. Yeah. And I, I often looked at the leaves of the fig tree. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if you have all this foliage around, why do you choose, why choose fig leaves? I, and I know there's, uh, I'm being facetious, I think the author is trying to make a case for the fact that when we sin, when we follow this impossible possibility, when we fa fall prey to idolatry, when we make a mistake, our initial human reaction is to justify ourselves, mm. to cover ourselves up. And when we justify and cover ourselves up, typically what we end up, we end up doing a really poor job of it. Yeah. 
it ends up looking a little bit ridiculous, mm -hmm. as I'm sure they did look mm -hmm. a bit ridiculous trying to cover themselves up Absolutely. with Absolutely. And yet we do that, right? I mean, that is human instinct. Um, whenever, you know, you, you see this in children, right? If you catch them doing something that they're not supposed to do, the first thing they do is what? They hide mm -hmm. it behind their back, right? This, this drive to hiddenness, this drive to hide our sin. And yet throughout scripture, we're told that sin only gets destroyed in the light, mm -hmm. right? It's like mold, right? Mold grows best in the dark. Sin grows best in hiddenness and in the dark. And the only way to get rid of it is to shine a light on it and be honest about what, what's going on. And so that you see God doing that. God shows up, you know, and he says, um, you know, uh, it says, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. Um, because I was naked, mm. so I hid. And who told? And God says to him, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" Mm. You know, God's not answering these asking these questions because He doesn't know the answers, right? There is a sense that God is trying to urge them, "Come into the light, mm. come into the light," so we yeah. can start to this healing yes. process. That'll preach. That will preach. That is so beautifully stated. And this is why it's tragic, but Genesis 3 has become one of my favorite passages because mm -hmm. I see so much grace there. Yeah. So Adam and Eve sin. They do this terrible job of justifying, and then they hear the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking about this, there is this connection in, in the Hebrew between nakedness and shame. Mm. And you see this through the Old Testament, right? Yeah. This really close-linked connection between particularly male nakedness and male shame. Mm. And so Adam's response, by the way, now Adam becomes very active. And Eve kind of goes into the background of the story. So Adam now is taken, taking uh, the front seat. And so Adam hides. And so he's hiding his shame. And I think, as you've mentioned, the only way to get rid of shame is expose it to the light. So God calls out the, man, the name of the man. And he, the question is a question that I'm sure we've heard throughout the 66 books of the Bible. Where are you? Mm. That's the question that Adam and Eve hear. That's the question that the, mo that the Israelites hear in Egypt. That's the question that... Uh, the judges will come and remind people time and time again the question that uh, the monarchs are trying to answer, the question that the prophets come and ask of the people that have fallen away, the question that they hear in Exodus, the question that Jesus will ask time and time again, where are you? Mm. Because we're trying to constantly hide from God. And then Adam just heartbreakingly answers, I heard your footsteps in the garden in the cool of the day and I hid mm. because wow. I was naked and I was afraid mm. fear and shame and I, you, you can almost hear Adam saying something's changed and the text tells us right that they've opened their eyes they've noticed something has changed and I think often Joey we we define ourselves well by our brokenness mm. like we define ourselves by what's wrong mm. by these by our worst moments, by our worst mistakes. And we allow the devil to manipulate that and to say, hey, this is who you are. You're now naked. Mm. You need to hide because God's not going to want you anymore. Mm. And God tells him, and this is 
if not my favorite verse in the Bible, it's close to the, to one of them. He says, who told you you were naked? Mm. See, we view ourselves and define ourselves in, t in terms of our brokenness mm. and our impossible attempts at being God and at controlling our circumstances and being masters of our own domain. And God, and God still sees us as this beautiful, wonderful creation. And so wow. he's calling us saying, who told you you were broken? Mm. You're still my child. Wow, I love that. That is so powerful. That it is important for us to recognize our brokenness, but we don't have to be defined mm -hmm. by our brokenness. And ironically, the reason why we hide our brokenness is because we don't want to be defined mm -hmm. by it. But ultimately, that hiddenness, hiding it, does define us. It mm -hmm. becomes a part of our, our identity because it keeps us from the healing we need to be able to move mm -hmm. on from it. And yet... We're so afraid that if we reveal that brokenness, that will define us. So we hide it and it ultimately defines us anyway. And yet, so what God, like you said, is God is saying, come to the light, come out from that hiddenness and allow me to begin that healing process because you are not your brokenness. You're more than that. Wow. I love that. Wow. That's such a powerful way of looking at it that... God is saying, you're more than that. Just come into the light because God wants to see us. Mm. Uh, I think of the Gospel of John and John's account and how, how closely linked this idea of salvation is to the idea of light and being seen and to mm. allow God to see you in all your brokenness. And it, it speaks a lot, I think, uh, about this issue of trust. And we're going to circle back to this issue that kind of led us into our conversation in the first place, which is you hide because you don't trust God. Mm. You hide because you haven't understood who God is. Because you believe that God is like any other relationship that you have, where once you make a mistake, you're, the other person's going to count you out. Mm. He's going to write you, he or she is going to write you off. And so I think the fear that Adam has is a fear that is birthed and born in distrust. And so mm -hmm. the issue of trust doesn't arrive at the garden as, as Eve is thinking about this apple. The issue of trust stems from a misunderstanding of who God is mm -hmm. in God's very own nature. And that's a really sobering thought. Mm -hmm. Wow. Because these two know God. I mean, they know God enough to recognize the sound of his footsteps in the garden in the cool of the day. So you would imagine that they've spent in a lot of time walking and being with God yeah. and having long conversations with God. Is it possible for us to be linked in an, in an innumerable amount of conversations about God? Meetings at church, worship services, sermons heard or sermons preached, prayers elevated where we think we know god mm. and yet our faith in our life is still defined by fear and mistrust wow i mean the disturbing answer is yes right so you're saying that eve had that those seeds of distrust even before she encountered the serpent even before she even approached that mm -hmm. tree those seeds of distrust were already in her heart and starting to grow and bear fruit Wow. wow, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but yeah, that makes sense that she, or else she would have never been caught up in what mm -hmm. the serpent was saying. So then how do we, how do we, 
how do we overcome that? If somebody who didn't even begin in sin, mm. someone who was created perfect when when he when she was created, someone who had that relationship with God could still have distrust. How do we build a trust with God that's mm. not shakable like mm. this? How how does that happen? That's a really good question, and the only answer to have that I have is is because we have more information than Adam and Eve. Mm. And you can say to yourself, wait, what? See, Adam and Eve don't trust because they think that God is holding something back from them. Mm. They think, hey, God is great, and this garden's beautiful, and life is wonderful, and you're great, and I love you deeply, but there's still more that we could have. Mm. God is holding this piece back from us. And so that's, I think, where the distress begins i mean at least it seems like that's what the text is indicating that there's this belief that both of them have that there's something greater to aspire to that Mm -hmm. god is simply trying to hold back but you know what joey we have now 66 books 66 books that define how god reacts to sin Mm. we have a story that spans generations and millennia of a God that says, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And God is saying, where are you? Because God simply wants to walk with us in the garden in the cool of day again. That's all that God wants. God wants to be with us and dwell with us. That's it. And so I think the way we start building an unshakable trust in God, even when we sin, is we look at God's reaction to sin Mm. throughout history wow and what i love about the gospels is that there is never condemnation for the sinner that's that seeks to be seen and to come to the light Mm. jesus never condemns a sinner that says i've made a mistake and i want to be seen now jesus says to that person today you will be with me in paradise Mm. And the promise is in the, in the end of the story, at the end of the story, Jesus will say to those people, finally, my dwelling place is among you and you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Wow. So I think the way that we start in the midst of our sin is that we recognize and we trust in how God deals with sin in the person and life of Jesus. Wow. So like borrowing a metaphor from Lewis Carroll, um, we've been to the other side mm-hmm. of that looking glass. We've been down that rabbit mm-hmm. hole and see that what's down there is so much worse yeah. <laughs> than what's out here, right? So so we know what's on the other side. And so that can keep us. And that, you know, Ellen White alludes to mm-hmm. that too, that for the ceaseless ages of eternity, we'll be singing the praises of what God has done because we know we've experienced firsthand uh, what happens when you buy into the lie, when you step into, step away from what is real, um, the destructiveness that can come, destruction that can come. And ultimately, I mean, Jesus stepped into this world to show us that God is willing to go to extreme lengths to bring us back mm-hmm. from the precipice of that destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the the connection, the, the, the connection between this passage and the temptations that Jesus mm-hmm. encounters um, when he's tempted by by Satan, you know, similar types of things, you know, that that Jesus is is tempted by, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the the pride of life, right? This idea that from First John that that Jesus, he, she, you know, Satan 
it's not it's not a fruit, but it it's bread, something mm-hmm. that he he would want to eat, desperately want to eat. He offers him power and glory to to be the ruler over this universe, right? To trust Satan instead of trusting God, bow down to Satan instead of bowing down to God. And in every turn, he shows that trust that Adam and Eve failed to do. Mm-hmm. Um and and for us opens a way for us to rebuild and to take that step of trust mm-hmm. once again, no matter how many times we fall. And that I think is the wonderful connection that scripture will make, and particularly Pauline literature will make with Jesus that we're with Jesus and Adam, Jesus as the second Adam. Whereas Adam fails because mm-hmm. of a lack of trust, Jesus perseveres because of his ability to submit to the will of God. And to recognize that even he, and I'm thinking about Philippians chapter 2 and that beautiful uh, statement of Christology, that even as he is eternal, he did not think uh, or he did not value eternity. And the Greek says, as something to be held on tightly, Mm. rather he emptied himself in obedience to the point of death, yes, yes, even death on a cross. And so it's, it's this wonderful paradox that we are at our at our wisest when 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 we seek to pursue the world's knowledge that we are at our most powerful when we seek to serve that we are at our freest when we submit to the will of god that we are our happiest when we when we take god at its at his core that we know Mm. more when we don't go down the rabbit hole and so Mm. i think I think there's there's a wonderful paradox at play there. And that leads me kind of to the last point in the last part of this passage where you see the, the results of sin. And so you have three things that change for, for our protagonists. Um, so first, uh, it's the serpent. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the serpent, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush you on her. Uh, he will crush you, your head and you will strike his heel. So obviously there's um, a Jewish interpretation for the text, but we uh, we read it as the Proto-Evangelion, the first uh, gospel, right? Um, this, this, this now clash between the church mm. and the powers of evil, and the promise that the that the serpent, with all its craftiness and all its will, wisdom, uh, will not overcome because this is the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail over it. Yeah. I love this this phrase, you know, that he will put enmity between you and the woman. That, um, he, like we said, this desire for what is false, what is not true, what is not real—it seems to be already growing fruits mm. in in Adam and Eve, and it con- will continue throughout history. And yet, God is saying, "I'm going to divinely put." enmity mm. there place it there so that this you don't fall completely into this addiction to sin this addiction to what is not true um and this is a story of the fall and yet as you pointed out what's so powerful is at every turn there's grace at every moment wherever god can fit it in the cracks there is grace and mercy 
Um, even in this, this description of all the destruction that will come, the fallout that will come from this fall, there is grace. Yeah. And I think that is so beautiful and so powerful. There is grace, and yet there's also consequences. And yeah. so the last part of the, uh, of the fall story includes these relationships now mm -hmm. that have been irreparably yeah. broken, right? Uh, first, you have uh, the woman and uh, pain and childbearing. Um, and the desire for it shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so now you start seeing, now you start seeing hierarchies. Yeah. Now you start seeing uh, control. Now you start seeing power dynamics. Now you start seeing and hearing about different roles. Mm -hmm. Now this harmony that was perfect is now broken. Mm. Um, now you start hearing about different type about some people who will be ordained and some people who are not ordained it's it's only after the fall that you have kind of this imbalance in power in the relationship with the woman vis-a-vis -vis the man but that's not the only relationship that has been altered the relationship between men and the earth has also been altered mm -hmm. and so we we who love to define ourselves by our work and by what we do, we who have been placed in the garden to till it, that's what God tells him in Genesis 2. I want you to work and your relationship will, will, with work will be beneficial. It will provide you identity. It will provide you meaning. Um, now, that relationship with our work and with the ground has shifted. Mm. And so it is going to be about working in excess. It is going to be about constantly trying to tame, whether it's the actual world or the world of finance or the world of uh, economy or whatever world uh, you happen to work in. It's about trying to tame that. And mm. the result of this attempt to find our identity in the, in the work itself will be thorns and thistles. So all over you have kind of brokenness in relationships that begin to seep through. Yeah. And, you know, there's always been an argument about whether this is prescriptive or is descriptive, right? Is God just describing the results of sin or is he telling them this is the way it has to be? I mean, either way that you 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 think of this, because um, sometimes people use that argument to say, well, if God told them that there should be this mm -hmm. inequality, then shouldn't we just keep this inequality? Mm -hmm. Well, God also told them that it's gonna be a it's gonna be a struggle to toil and till the mm -hmm. soil and there's gonna be thorns. But nobody would say, well, then I should make tilling the soil as hard as possible, mm -hmm. right? Because God said it would be hard. So then we shouldn't use machines. We shouldn't do, no, we still try to <laughs> reach back to that ideal of right. it not being a right. suffering, right? So I don't think that is a valid argument for saying, um, well, since God made this inequality here, that means that we should always keep mm -hmm. it, right? Even if God is prescribing this, we are saying this is not the ideal. The ideal is before this. Mm -hmm. And so... God is working to bring us back to that ideal, that ideal that we have a good relationship with our work, that we have a good relationship with our spouse, that we have a good relationship with God. This is the ultimate goal um, of the salvation process. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that regardless, again, grace is there. That means we aren't stuck where Adam That's and Eve ended right. up, right? We are moving towards something that is better. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so I think like you've alluded to, when it comes to how I see and how I read the passage, 
it's definitely God saying, this is the result now of broken trust. Mm. But that doesn't mean that that brokenness has to remain there. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see the brokenness, you see the cracks already before, right? You mentioned it uh, a minute ago. Eve blames the serpent, Adam blames Eve. Everybody's trying to justify and escape from responsibility. That, again, depicts this lack of trust. And that lack of trust now that has become part and parcel of our existence is going to be lived out in our relationships. And so how do you do that? Well, I think, again, you this in the same way that you attempt to develop an unshakable trust in God, even in the midst of brokenness, the call then is to develop an, an unshakable trust with our spouse, with our friends, with our coworkers, and even with our purpose and our calling. And how do you develop that unshakable trust? Well, in the same way that you develop unshakable trust in, your, in God's capacity to forgive you by looking at how he deals with sin, you probably ought to de develop unshakable trust in your relationships by looking at how God treated others. And how so what is Jesus' position on women? What is Jesus' position with work? What is Jesus' position as it pertains to people that would rebuke you and would uh, vilify you? And probably if you begin to adopt those positions, uh, you will begin to restore just a smidge of trust in those relationships that are otherwise broken. Wow, that's so beautiful. Look to Jesus. Look to Look Jesus. To Jesus. Yeah. Joey, let's pray. I'm so glad to have you back. Again, if you have questions or comments, see, we do read them. Please send them to us. Um, we will get those, met, those commentaries out to you. And we have a very interesting book also on... Um, the Fall. Uh, it's a book that I love. It's written by Brennan Manning, and we have just five copies of that book. I have them left over, so if you're interested in getting one of those, uh, talk. tell us something that you enjoyed or share, share a question with us uh, in this video, and we'd love, we'd love to get those for you. Joey, they're going to leave me without books, but don't leave us without a blessing as we pray. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you for your grace which is evident even in these this passage that is all about the fall and all about how we as human, humans have failed. We've chosen ourselves. We've chosen the lie over the truth. And yet throughout it, you're already making plans for healing. You're already beginning that healing mm. process. And you still do that today. You call us into the light. You call us to reveal our brokenness to you so that you can heal us from it so that we no longer need to be defined by it. Lord, help us to embrace your grace is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we'll see you next week as we continue to talk about the book of Genesis. Remember, just look to Jesus. Happy Sabbath.